0: Dr. Tim and his messages that have led up to this series. They've been profound, and I don't use that word lightly, but I believe they have, profoundly. And finally, Christopher West, and i grateful for his time with us as he insightfully and meaningfully engaged this topic. So we've got a lot to be thankful for. I'm also thankful in a, in a less serious way. Uh, how many of you all have taken your Title IX online training? I'm just glad that we can use anatomically correct terms now, at least in this context. I just, I really am happy about about that. In our department, we're really blessed now to be able to, at least in the context of this, to talk about things with their names. So, (laughs) as a result of these chapter experiences, I have really enjoyed, been actually gratified by the opportunity to consider with uh, students as well as with colleagues, what holy embodiment means. And Reg and Michelle and I are honored to be a part of that, encouraging our community not to stop, as Jessica said, to continue thinking about this, because it's extremely practical. It's not that this idea of embodiment is new to us as Wesleyans, it's just that it's not on our top 10 list of theological discussions. It's one of those things that uh, you can hear, though, if you listen closely to the comments that go on all around us. Some of the ones we miss. Things like this. Have you heard these? I stayed awake all last night to study for my Hebrew exam. Or Sabbath. Who has time for Sabbath? Or maybe you've heard this one. All I've eaten today is sugar and carbs. I've craved them all morning. I said that one actually this morning, but that's <laughs> I just inserted that one here. So how about this one? I'm so stressed, I can't get to sleep at night. Or, why am I so angry lately? Or maybe, here's more, here's a faculty one. I have so many committee assignments, I don't have time to think about formation. I am so tired, I have to drag myself out of bed every morning. Or, I can't imagine going to class without three cups of coffee, four cups of coffee five cups of coffee <laughs> and I'm the teacher so that's it or how about this one self care yeah I'll just add it to my list of things to do <laughs> We hear. do you hear these comments around us do you say these things to yourself I have and all of them speak to a very practical theology of the body that we can't get away from you know now that I think about it I think this may be actually the most common theological discussion we have on campus. At least as how this is the faculty and staff and students. How can I be so sure? Well, I am one of those fortunate people who gets to look at all of those CFP surveys and all of those uh, CFP focus groups across the years. And when I say fortunate, I, am, I really mean it. I am not being sarcastic because I'm a counselor and I'm a researcher and I love data. And I love looking at what you say about what's going on around formation in your life. And here's one of the most prominent messages for the last two or three years. We at Asbury have very busy bodies. When students characterize their own lives and when they they characterize the life of faculty and administration, inevitably it's the relentless pace of life that shows up in the things they talk about. Among all the good things that we're doing here at Asbury, one of the consistent descriptors that students use to portray the spirit of our institution is a four-letter word, B-U-S-Y, busy. Faculty much the same thing. Theologically speaking, I'd like to suggest to you that busyness tends to make us into functional dualists. We're too smart to, to give any assent to Gnostic sorts of processes. The body is bad, the spirit is good, we don't do those kind of things either, but but the reality is, is that in the busyness, in the rush of life, it's so easy to sacrifice our body for functional purposes. As Paul described in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, I may give up my body to be burned for reasons that have nothing to do with life. can't think of a bigger deal for those of us who call ourselves Westerns who, who believe that love is at the hub of everything that we do, especially our theology. In my world, modern neuroscience tells us that love starts with our bodies. Largely emotional, our bodies from moment to moment either prime us to love or prime us to avoid love. Yes, will and also things like reason play a significant part. But it all appears to start physically. Love builds from the body up and sanctification that's not embodied is really not sanctification at all. So what does that mean practically? It means that in every human encounter, in every situation where we touch another person's life, we are either making room for love or we're making room for something other than love. And here's the thing we're usually not even aware of it. Unless we're intentional, we're often unaware of the significance of each momentary experience in a relationship. For example, when I go to the grocery store at Kroger in Nicholasville and I set my groceries on the conveyor belt and I look into the eyes of that other human being who's checking through my dog food cans, we might make small talk or we might say very little at all and most of it just nonverbal. But in that moment, we are sharing an involuntary, physical, body-to-body experience that will probably go unnoticed if we're not good theologians. Medical researchers describe human physiology as an open-loop arrangement. Our bodies are made to sync up, and it has nothing to do with our choice to do so. If humans are in a relational context, They are syncing up and changing one another, even if they don't realize it. When I interact with that cashier at Kroger for only a brief, and some might say inconsequential moment, in the course of that day, we are exchanging regulatory information. We are altering our hormone levels, our cardiovascular function, our immune systems, our sleep rhythms, our brain waves. All of those things are changing because of What's going on between these two synced-up human beings that really don't even know each other? My bodily state is transmitted to my unknown relational partner and his his to me. And here's what's scary for us Western, rugged individualists. We can't stop our bodies from doing what God designed them to do. None of us are complete on our own. You know that. Each has loops that only somebody else can complete. And medical researchers tell us that in syncing up, it's really our only chance to become stable and properly balanced organisms. Kind of sounds like Christian theology, doesn't it? And in that mysterious moment, in every single relational engagement, our syncing up bears an amazing likeness to the indwelling Son, and Holy Spirit. Our bodies in this creaturely life together dance images are trying God. It's only an icon, as Christopher West reminded us on Tuesday. It's not the same as the that perichoretic dance that goes on between the three divine persons. But it is an enfleshed image of loving communion in human form. So is it any wonder why love is such a big deal to God? More than simply a romantic sentiment or a worthy ideal, (coughs) embodied holy love is fundamental and practical to life together. To put it in very basic terms, if we're not embodying holy love from moment to moment, we're embodying something else, like business. If we're not transmitting to our relational partner the conditions for love, and we're transmitting. We're probably transmitting something that just makes love harder. It's not that there's anything wrong with being busy, folks. It's not. That's not the issue. The real question, though, is whether love is what people feel when they're with us in the midst of the business.
1: On those days when we intentionally or unintentionally
0: choose productivity or efficiency over love, we probably should carry around a sign that just says. Surgeon General warning, at this moment, I may literally be bad for your health. <laughs> at least in my business, we call it giving proper informed consent. <laughs> it may explain a lot, wouldn't it? <laughs> What's the result of paying attention to this physical reality? In each of the relational moments we're in, we are training for a kind of oneness that Jesus prayed for us in John 17 that we may all be one as the Father and Son are one. <laughs> if we are good enough stewards of our bodies, then our bodies seem to be designed to lead us into it naturally. We are connecting through our bodies in ways that quite, quite literally unite us into the larger body of Christ. See, we're, this is, I want to be clear about what I'm saying here. And I don't know that I have all the time, but bear with me. See, we are all made for one flesh relating. That is much more than sexual. Sometimes we just narrow down one flesh to being sexual in marriage. And it is, it is about being sexual in marriage. But it's bigger, folks. Our bodies are made for this kind of indeed profound and amazing mystery. This one flesh mystery transcends male and female. It transcends single or married. It transcends color or creed. In fact, I hesitate to say this, but you know you're syncing up with the person sitting next to you right now? (laughs) Yeah, you're moving uncomfortably at this moment. I see that. (laughs) I mean, if you would, turn and look at the people around you. Turn and look at the person next to you, behind you. They're changing your body. They're changing what's going on inside of you. Dennis Kinlaw, who Christopher West liked to quote out of our tradition, makes a provocative term. He says, human beings can't help but penetrate one another. Yes, and he means to be evocative when he says that. Because we are penetrating one another because that's the way we're designed to be and it goes beyond just the sexual we are in communication with one another's with one another that makes love more than a nice gesture (laughs) it's essential to our survival folks formation that we talk about here at the seminary it's not because it's good for you it's because you're dangerous and i'm dangerous if we're not because we're just out for ourselves when we're busy. See, it's it's God's original design, and it's even more relevant in our fallen world. Male or female, single or married, we are all practicing now to be one body. It's not just when we get there to heaven. We are called to be one body now. Imaging father and son Who have make it happen. It's not our effort. It's the Spirit that unites them and unites us in the same process. God never calls us to provide, calls us to something, calls us to be one body without providing what we need to answer that call. It starts with our bodies, folks. It starts with the way we sleep. It starts with the way we eat. It starts with the way we exercise. It starts with the way we engage our bodies so that we're ready to engage one another. Such knowledge is too wonderful. Psalm 139 affirms, we are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. Would you pray with me? In this body, Lord, We honor you.
1: Amen. Before we go any further, uh, there's something I need you all to know about me. I've just got to get this off my chest. Um, Back in the day, I had a MySpace page. (laughs) Raise your hand if you had a MySpace page. Tala! Okay, so for those of you that may have missed the whole MySpace period, that was how... We got our social media on back in the day when, when we couldn't get on Facebook, because um, some of us were excluded from that. But anyway, um, on my MySpace, I find it interesting that in my About Me section, I had one single line um, from Amazing Grace written on there. It's, it read, I once was lost, but now am found. And I find it so odd because I was wayward when I wrote it. I was crazy in those college days, but somehow it still had meaning to me. Perhaps it had meaning because I considered myself found, which would have been true. I was indeed a Christian. But though I didn't know it, I desperately needed to be found because I was always trying to lose myself. My self-destructive behaviors have taken different forms, but they all had the underlying theme of losing myself. Whether it was losing weight, literally losing my body, or binge drinking to lose my emotions, which is my bodily response to the world, it was all about escaping reality. I needed to get out of here. I needed to get separate from this body. I don't remember when I began to hate myself. It seemed to be in the air that I was breathing. I was innocently trusting the culture around me and ingesting the thick, poisoning messages of body shame. It always delivered the same message. You are not good enough. You must be fixed, managed, controlled. You are not thin enough. You must be pretty and pleasing and helpful. It was very clear that I was to fit into this tiny little box and not step out. So I decided to leave my true self behind and walk forward as whoever the world needed me to be. Shame is an unbearable emotion and causes immense amounts of pressure. Very quickly, I found ways to exist under this pressure, My first diet was at age nine. This began a constant pattern of dieting which would eventually develop into anorexia at age 19. My first drink of alcohol was at age 14 and I drank alcoholically for that day forward. Alcohol helped me lose my emotions. It especially helped me to separate from the shame my promiscuous behavior had brought about. Controlling what I ate also helped me separate from my emotions by manipulating them. If I didn't eat, I felt powerful. If I was thin, I felt powerful. And in a culture that equates thin and fit with powerful and put together, my actions were encouraged. Managing my weight helped me separate from my gender. To have round thighs or curvy hips is a biological sex characteristic that is female. I was even trying to separate from my gender by becoming hard and angular. All of this was a sixth cycle and it required me to take more and more steps away from myself. I had to escape more. I had to lose this body at all costs, and I had to lose these emotions. I had to lose me. And as hard as I was trying to lose me, I was still being found. My God would find me every day. He would come sweetly and gently and show me to me. He would help me find me. God was not content with saving me so that I could get into heaven after I died an alcoholic or an anorexic death. He would begin a work of reconciliation and bring me into deeper relationship with myself, with others, and with himself. He is revealing my true self to me And he says that I'm good. He says that you are good. The Holy One who revealed himself in a body is reconciling us to our bodies. And he declares that it is very good. So the night before I moved to seminary, the Lord called me into sobriety. Then I got in the car with my mother, and we drove 19 hours across the country, which is not recommended in your first 24 hours of sobriety. <laughs> but <laughs> we both survived, and I love my mother very much. Also, in my first year of seminary, I was able to seek help for my eating disorder through outpatient treatment in Lexington. This August, I celebrated five years of sobriety. <laughs> and I've been free from obsessions and compulsions to manipulate my body through diet and exercise for four years (laughs) today I do not find it necessary to abandon myself and escape who I am I am able to be present with myself which ultimately allows me to be present with God and with others in ministry. We serve a God who is love and are made in his image, and I want to emphasize that our bodies respond to love. We can see this exhibited in nature. Plants, animals, and even small babies all respond to love. In fact, they thrive in a loving, caring environment. So why would we absorb and believe anything else? Culture tells us that we're lazy and that we need to whip our bodies into shape. Hashtag self-care looks more like hashtag self-abuse. Your body does not need to be dominated or managed. It needs to be set free in love to thrive. Be kind to you your body will respond. These mighty acts that Jesus has done in me are not just for me. These are gifts for the bride of Christ. These are gifts from my body to his body. This is personal and social holiness. Because Jesus called me to participate in deep formation, I am able to be in right relationship with myself, with others, and with God. If you were here in my first year, thank you. I was pretty rough around the edges, and I was not always kind. You created space for me to work this out with God. Um, You loved me before I was lovable. Thank you for providing a soft spot for me to land and to work out the turmoil that raged within me. This community was both intentionally and sometimes unintentionally the body of Christ for me, as Christ was putting his wounds on my wounds and healing me. There is grace here for your rough edges. All those years ago on MySpace, I cherished those lyrics even before I knew what it meant to be found. Today in this space, I stand before you, fully present and found by the one who gave his body in order to reconcile all of our bodies to him. Lord, in this body, we honor you. Amen. Amen.
2: What a wonderful testimony that was. Well, when uh, Jessica invited me to uh, participate in chapel today, she gave me two options. One was to dance, and the other was, <laughs> I was joking. It was magnificent, you all.
0: <laughs>
2: I decided I would just yield the floor to somebody who knew what they were doing and uh, and uh, just celebrate that uh, that wonderful rendition y'all did this morning. Thank you very much. So anyway, I uh, have been asked to speak about uh, what this uh, particular stage of life has to say about body. And when I say this particular stage of life, I'm talking about this one here. And uh, about the, uh, the things that happen with us when the body can no longer be expected to do some of the things that it used to do. And we find that there are some capacities that are diminishing and so forth. So how do we make peace or how do we, in fact, uh, come to love? How do we, in fact, uh, live through these years with the abundant life that Jesus promised us? Steve was sharing with a few of us the other day, uh, Steve Stratton, that uh, his father-in-law, when he was, who had been a very well-known scientist, uh, highly... uh, highly recommended because of the uh, specialty that he was uh, that he was so familiar with and had made such a name for himself that when it came to the place in his life where because of a physical diagnosis he was no longer able to continue with that work he was saying to uh, Steve on the way home from the doctor's appointment that day and after a period of silence he said you know Steve I've come to realize that my life needs to be about something different, something more. He says, I've realized now that my life should be about love. He was a very rational man who had lived his whole life in his specialty and had sought uh, fame and uh, glory in the things that he knew. And now it was about what he could give to others through the capacity of loving that God had given to him. And he said, most especially, I want to show love to those who take care of me. I want to show God's love to those who take care of me. Well, God worked an amazing transformation in that man's life and uh, redeemed the time for him and allowed him to live into a different mission in his life. One of the things that certainly happens uh, at the stage of life uh, that we call... Some of us affectionately call later midlife, but it's worse than that. It's it's the winter of life. But some of the things that uh, we realize is that in fact there's a rethinking of life that has to happen, a reevaluation. Uh, the culture around us gives us a script to live up to, as we've already heard about, that prizes uh, physical dexterity and strength and uh, measures our worth by our accomplishments and uh, our accumulation and all of those kinds of things. It's not hard for a man to find his value and worth in what he does, in his work. And so when we come to a place in life where, in fact, uh, we have to reevaluate those things, uh, you'll find a lot of people doing some changing and uh, some rethinking. You find some people who've already made that kind of adjustment and have already begun to live in a new place just to continue on that path. We've had two incredible models of that among us with uh, Dr. Don Demeray and Dr. Ellsworth Callis. These are men who serve as models for all of us. They are my heroes. Uh, persons who are able to, in fact, enter into these years with us with a kind of grace and a and a joy that made these years, li- uh, years of abundant life just as they had experienced before and that is really important. The research is showing us now that, uh, that people can live into this stage of life uh, without having to be cared for by others far longer than we've ever been able to do that before. So that uh, the capacities that we have to be able to live life more fully in later years, uh, has been going up, not down. And so this is, uh, in fact, a a breakthrough that uh, gives new opportunities to people. Um, I just want to bring things to to a tight little close here and just simply say, Jesus has invited all of us to follow him into abundant life and to receive that great gift from him. In John 10.10, when he said those words, it was in the context of talking to people about how they would know the good shepherd because they would recognize his voice. And these people around him had recognized his voice because it resonated deeply within their souls. And because they recognized the voice, they knew that this was indeed the shepherd, the good shepherd who was to come, uh, God's presence among them. That... Life Abundant is the life that we live now as persons who know the Good Shepherd, who hear his voice, who can't believe that he calls us by name, and who seek to follow him every day of our lives. In the days that we have, we've been given the golden opportunities of each precious moment. Sometimes when we spend our time complaining about what we can no longer do, are getting all wrapped up in the endings that are taking place in life. We miss the very gift of what God is placing before us in the now, which is the gift of this precious moment. One of the great uh, uh, sources that uh, feeds my soul is John de Cassade in his book, The Sacrament of the Present Moment. And he says, Our earliest spiritual ancestors didn't have all the books of advice, or organizations to find spiritual directors for them and so forth. He said, all they knew was that each moment brought its appointed task faithfully to be accomplished. That was all they needed. All their attention was focused on the present minute by minute, like the hand of a clock that marks the minutes of each hour covering the distance along which it has to travel. Constantly prompted by divine impulsion, They found themselves imperceptibly turned toward the next task that God had ready for them at each hour of the day. Do you follow that kind of thinking? That each hour, each second has a new moment that is given by God, and we've been given the task for that moment. And so the whole opportunity of living in the present moment and enjoying the goodness of God is the gift that we are given my uh, brothers uh, Don Demaree and Ellsworth Callis lived lives that were a, a beautiful example of the last verse of the 23rd Psalm. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. In this stage of life, that's our, that's our call. God, that's our gift from God to receive the gifts of goodness and mercy and to live in the full the moments that God has given to us for his glory. And now in the words of the prayer in this body, Lord, we honor you.
1: Amen.